Monday, October 15th. Welcome to Market Fuller. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser. And from Motley Fool Inside Value, the birthday boy, Joe Mager. Hey, happy, happy, happy birthday, Joe. Happy birthday, Joe. Not, Joe. Yes. Don't sing, because then we'll have, nope, to, we'll, have to, we'll have to pay. You have to pay money if you sing happy birthday. We're, we're, we're cheap. Right? Pay money for me to stop. Yeah. <laughs> pay money for um, me to stop. Uh, how did you celebrate, Joe? You uh, you, you had a, a fabulous looking cake that I saw that you posted on Facebook. Yeah, we did. My mother in law came over last night, and her and my wife made these beef and pork dumplings that were amazing. <laughs> it took them a couple hours to make them. It was fantastic. Did and you then, bring some into the office today? No, I don't share food. Thanks, Joe. But Irene also made me a this gorgeous homemade double layer cake. I, I feel like we should date him now, Chris. <laughs> It's we, the 10th anniversary of his, I think we can say it, 31 is still young, right? Absolutely. I'm a, I'm Absolutely. a young man. He's oh, just a child. But I'm old at heart. All right, let's actually talk about some news. Uh, the Sprint deal has been finalized. We are going to dip into the full mailbag, but it's earnings season, so we're going to start with Citigroup. Citigroup's third quarter profits were down 88%, but earnings still came in better than expected. Uh, Joe, the share's up. About 4% earlier this morning, we had talked on Motley Fool Money last weekend about uh, the the first couple of big banks to report, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, um, Citigroup kind of getting it done. Yeah, well, when you have very low expectations, it's, <laughs> it's easy to clear the bar. And this is, this is how low they are. The stock is selling at a one-third discount to tangible book value, which is its conceptual liquidation if everyone put their pencils down and went home and someone stuck around to orderly sell everything they they possess uh that would be it that <laughs> really says a lot about how little value people assign to management here and the people running the business uh, you know with city <laughs> excuse me you can't actually assess the business by looking at the individual quarterly results unfortunately because there's so much noise and there's just a non-stop barrage of one's one-time charges and gains and that was the same thing here the headline numbers look terrible but they actually weren't all that bad underneath they beat analyst smooth estimates um you know welcome news but still among the big banks and i own a couple of them i own goldman i own jp morgan that are very dirty Uh, (laughs) dirty value this is the dirty one in the pool really yeah what do you think, Jason? I think so. I mean, if you look back uh, over the last decade alone, just, I mean, a great example is, is just the uh, the increase in shares outstanding. I mean, these guys had to issue so many shares during the financial crisis just to be able to stay afloat. Uh, and then not too terribly long ago, they pulled the reverse split just to bring their stock price back up to an acceptable level. Oh, that's right. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that, that I, I remember. <laughs> I think that with City, you need to, you need to look more at... City as sort of a picture of how things are going on a global basis. Because, I mean, if you look at their core businesses, like consumer lending, for example, uh, the results there were pretty good. They're they're making some money in their mortgage division. Uh, So, I mean, a lot of people out there taking advantage of the low rates and refinancing, myself being one of them. Uh, But, I mean, I think still it's... It's very hard to understand what exactly is on the books of a bank like this, because it's so big and they've had to do so many... uh, just reassessments of the situation over the past five, six years that, you know, that discount to tangible book, book value, like Joe was saying, 
it's one thing if you're talking about a quality management team, something like a Wells Fargo, uh, where there's a little bit more faith in management. You could see the backing there by Buffett. Uh, so you you got to take that into consideration. But with a, with a bank like City, uh, there's still a lot of unknowns there, and um, I wouldn't necessarily be looking at this as a, as a no-brainer opportunity. Yeah, also how quickly banks turn their assets, too. So Goldman turns theirs pretty quickly, and it gives you a little more transparency on what they own. But if a bank is just sitting on a bunch of old loans, that definitely doesn't give you much confidence about what they're worth. So, Joe, you said of the big banks on Wall Street in terms of valuation, you, you look at this as the dirtiest of the dirty <laughs> value big banks. What, yeah. what would need to happen to get you interested Maybe not plunking down money, but a little bit more interested. Is it new management? Um, yeah, is, I think is it a few more quarters like this one? It's a farce that Pandit is still running this company, given just all the train wrecks that have happened there. And I'm forever jaded on City, admittedly, after reading Mike Mayo's book, which I highly recommend if you're is thinking this, uh, about banks. Exile on Wall Street? Yeah, it was a great read. And he basically lays out a very... You know, I don't honestly think he has an axe to grind with City specifically, but he laid out a pretty storied history in a bad way of how City has been involved in almost every major financial calamity over the years in the U.S. and how they just keep managing to step in it. Uh, and that just uh, <laughs> was a real turnoff for yeah. me. Right in turn with Bank of America. I mean, it's, you can count on either City or Bank of America hitting those headlines every day, and it's going to be something that you're like, oh, they stepped in it again. I think earlier this year, um, Mike Mayo, uh, the analyst that Joe was talking about, uh, he was interviewing Pandit at, uh, at the, the big economic conference in Davos. And he basically said to his face, you know, on stage in front of all these people, he basically said, "I can't believe you're the like you're here representing Wall Street. Like, I, uh, like of all the CEOs of all the big banks on Wall Street, I can't believe you're the guy who's here." So I think that gives some indication of what Mike Mayo thinks. He's about. a straight shooter. He is a straight shooter. Um, what we talked about uh, last week is now official. SoftBank has announced plans to buy a seventy percent stake. In Sprint Nextel, uh, last week when we talked about this, uh, shares of, of Sprint Nextel were up. Uh, one of our listeners in Japan, uh, Jordan DeJong, uh, pointed out that shares of SoftBank, on the other hand, down about twenty percent since uh, since this deal was first uh, reported yeah. last week. Um, Joe, what do you what do you think about this deal? And I, I guess, sort of looking forward, I'm wondering. How much this deal and how much the money, this infusion of cash, is going to help Sprint Nextel really build out their next generation wireless network? Well, it's going to help. I mean, to frame it in winners and losers, SoftBank is making a terrible move here. I mean, Sprint is not strategically aligned in any way with their overall business. I don't see how ultimately they think this is going to sink into what they're trying to accomplish in Japan. I don't see any synergies on the cost or revenue side. And realistically, <laughs> they're going to have to plow a ton of money into Sprint to make them competitive and either by you know, continuing to build out the LTE network, marketing, or having to go out and acquire a second, another, not even a second tier, a fourth or fifth or sixth tier wireless carrier to bolt on to Sprint to give them more scale and synergy. But again, very, uh, very expensive, not something I'd be excited about. If I was a SoftBank shareholder, I'd be furious with this deal. And if I was a Sprint shareholder, I'd feel pretty darn lucky. 
What do you think, Jason, when you look at this deal? Yeah, I think it's their uh, effort to play into what's still a relatively strong replace, uh, replacement cycle here in the United States. I mean, with smartphones are still you know going really strong here, and it seems like with every new iteration as of, of an Apple iPhone or, or a Google Android device, there are more people getting into the smartphone market. And I mean, you know, I... I just look at myself, for example. I mean, it wasn't that long ago when I, I upgraded from the flip phone to an iPhone. So there's still plenty of people out there who don't who don't have them here. Uh, I think that those smartphone markets are becoming a little bit more saturated elsewhere. But yeah, like Joe said, I mean, it's it's certainly a good deal for Sprint because it gives them you know an opportunity to pick up share and and play more in that game. But you're still faced uh, with the the monumental task of. of dealing with AT&T and Verizon in a game that they're already well well ahead in, and, and they're always going to be able to bring in more capital as far as that's concerned. So, yeah, SoftBank shareholders should be concerned because I think this is going to cost a lot of money over the long haul. Sprint shareholders <laughs> might not be such you a bad it. idea to consider <laughs> taking a nice little bow and <laughs> exiting stage left, but that's just me. I'm not making a recommendation here. Uh, yeah. One of the ripple effects that we are seeing, Joe, is uh, with tower operators. So, you know, there, there is something, I think, to be said for this notion that, you know, that they're going to build out this network. Uh, companies, American, like American Tower, Crown Castle International, SBA Communications, shares all up today. So clearly someone thinks that this is going to have a, a benefit to the tower operators. But on the flip side, um, we were talking earlier about some of the hardware companies and sort of the long-term trend in terms of, uh, you know, to Jason's point, sort of this replacement cycle, um, is is that is that one of those situations where it's looking good now, but five years from now, less good? Yeah, well, with American Tower, this is a longtime Chuck Ockrey holding, and Chuck is a friend of the pool, and I'm one of my favorite investors, very smart guy, and they have made an absolute killing on American Tower over the years. It's some ridiculous multi-bagger that would blow away anything you've heard. I don't want to give a number, but it was something in like, I don't know, the many thousand percent kind of return position. Um, hats off to him for that. I'm not wild about the tower operators. It's very consistent revenue and there is some you know price escalation built in there. But what concerns me is that towers, ultimately, I think you're going to see a lot more towers popping up and you're going to see a lot more efficiency <laughs> at the data transfer level. Uh, I'm not, you know, a tower technician or expert on that, so I just really caveat you kind of sound like one. I know. <laughs> um, I'm very good at sounding like it. Uh, <laughs> you know, in terms of though, what you're saying with like saturation, I, that definitely stuck out at me when I was reading about this. And um, U.S. I'm sorry, in Japan, which is now basically a 100% essentially saturated wireless market with including 3G, is now basically seen a fall a fall off in handsets uh, in 2007 they did 52 million handsets and this past year uh, they did 38 and that is a pretty remarkable drop off and i think it's something that u.s investors should be cognizant of because once the country hit a critical mass of okay we've all got a phone it's all 3g there's not really you know, it runs, uh, it has data for me, it processes video, it's fairly quick, it's not amazing, but it's good enough. Um, phone cells pretty much immediately fell off a cliff. And right now, in Japan, they're selling about 0.3 phones per capita, and we're at 0.6 here in the U.S. That's a pretty big gap. Yep. So it's just something to think about if you're out there valuing, say, 
Apple on your long-term forecast of U.S. sales, you may want to think about what does it look like once the market gets saturated. If we move kind of a towards Japan, which arguably is a good proxy, you know, it's a a lot longer replacement cycle. If you're projecting out, you might want to want to project five and ten years. Maybe project more like one to three. Yeah, well, I think Japan's a good case of how these cliffs can happen pretty quickly. You know, like at some point. You know, like, look at Mac, for example. He's got his iPhone 5. I'm guessing Mac is not going to upgrade for a very long time. <laughs> Mac our producer, who was the last holdout with a BlackBerry here at the Motley Fool and over the weekend got himself an iPhone 5. And, um, uh, yeah, is it is it fair to say he's pleased with it, just based on his <laughs> he reaction? He seemed very happy with it. Very, very happy. I think ecstatic. the dead giveaway was when he asked Siri for a high five. <laughs> Um, to Joe's point, though, uh, I think <clears throat> excuse me, I think there's something to that because if you look at Apple, for example, and the way they've rolled out their products back in 2007, they had the iPhone, and then I think it was 2010 where the the iPad came out. You know, we're, we're closing up 2012 now, and we know that uh, October 23rd there's this invitation only event where it's assumed they're going to announce this this mini iPad, and we still haven't gotten our invitation <laughs> for yeah, the I'm, folks I'm for the folks at Apple who are listening. Extremely Ra- disappointed. I'm not by doing that. anything that day. Radio at fool.com. We'll you know we'll be there. Just drop us an email. But it's worth noting that the market is forward-looking, as we know. And so this saturation point, this replacement cycle, as it slows down, I mean, every new iPhone, there's less and less of a wow factor. So I think Apple's realizing that, and that's part of the deal. If this is, in fact, true, that the mini iPad is coming out, then uh, they are looking to pick up more market share by introducing that new device. Yeah, and before we get hate mail about the Apple thing, (laughs) let me just go ahead and say that I realize that Apple is now a... (laughs) very well diversified international business so they're not just milking the u.s cow at this point i do think it's important to remember though that the u.s market is their biggest profit center and i think it'll stay that way we have the deepest pockets we have carrier subsidized plans so the phones look cheaper to us because of 199 dollars price point yeah. instead of 650 buying it unlocked internationally so you know i just think that's something investors should be keeping in mind in a very long-term sense Got an email from Aaron Wellick in Irvine, California. He writes, I listen on the drive or bicycle ride into work. When I'm cycling, I use a portable speaker system and place it in my backpack. That way I I avoid having headphones on and I can hear traffic around me. It works nicely. So spread the word so other cyclists can (laughs) consider this as a safer alternative to headphones. That is a safer alternative. So so kudos to to Aaron for doing that. Although I have to believe somewhere along his ride, if he stopped at a red light or something like that, there's some pedestrian walking by just thinking, who are those guys talking in that man's backpack? And I wish, I wish he'd turn it off. Yeah. Uh, he goes on to uh, ask, uh, the drought this summer is driving the cost of food higher. I'm wondering how this will impact the prices of various stocks related to these commodities, such as grocers, and he mentions uh, Whole Foods and Costco, uh, fast food, Yum Brands, McDonald's, Chipotle, and restaurants, etc. Will it present a good opportunity to get into some of these types of stocks? Are there any companies in particular that we should add to our watch list? And what metrics do you look at when considering these companies and these type of events? Uh, of events. Uh, Jason, obviously there's a lot there. Uh, it would seem to me that a company like Costco is safer off. Yes, they're, you know, they're dealing with uh, commodity prices, but they would seem to be in a, in a much safer position than a Chipotle or a McDonald's. I think there's something to that. I mean, Costco being the low-cost provider, their first priority is to make sure that they're giving their members really the best price that they possibly can. And they will 
uh, they will accept that in those razor thin margins in order to to keep their members for the long haul. And I think that that proves that that point was proven uh, last year when they when they raised their membership fees. You know, there was some speculation out there as to whether that would scare some people away or detract from you know people from joining. But we know in Costco's recent uh, announcement here that renewal rates for the U.S. and Canada were ninety percent worldwide, were eighty six percent. So they're strong as ever. And so there's a lot to be said for a company like Costco because they are based on that low uh, that low cost provider model and if you look at something like a Chipotle uh, or a Panera even to to a degree they possess a little bit of pricing power in the quality of the food and the experience but they have to be really careful uh, in passing those those price increases along to the consumer because there is a point at which the consumer will just say eh, no that's good I'm, I'm, I've had it I'm gonna go somewhere else and then the cost of winning those consumers back can even be greater in the long run uh, and so you know we haven't seen Chipotle and Panera really passing through a lot of heavy price increases at all. And even the the most recent Chipotle call a quarter ago, they, they mentioned that they weren't going to be boosting prices in order to just boost their comps for analysts' sake. So, th- so they weren't really looking at passing along any price increases. Well, they're going to save that, money by cutting a spoonful of salt from each <laughs> Quite burrito. possibly. Now, with that said, I think that the, the drought certainly will be something that could play out here over the next couple of quarters. And I, I'm really interested to see this quarter's uh, announcements with Chipotle and Panera uh, to see how that's affected uh, the past quarter and how they're projecting it to play out over the next couple of quarters. Uh, investors will want to keep an eye just on on the gross margin, for example, which is it, it accounts for the cost of the goods sold. Uh, and you know, in Panera and Chipotle's case, that being the food. Uh, so if if gross margins are taking a hit, then we'll see obviously that uh, food costs are higher, and we'll see how they're able to uh, deal with that. Joe, any companies uh, that you're thinking about um, either? putting on your watch list or sort of bumping up your watch list as a result of, you know, this whole notion of food commodity prices? Yeah, well, I definitely think that food commodity price shocks are a really good opportunity to get into some of the better names out there. One of my favorites, McCormick. Uh, I don't own it anymore, and I recommended it at IV a couple years ago when a lot of their cost inputs, for them, it's garlic powder and pepper, uh, went up very, very dearly, and it squeezed their margins, and the market responded by basically pricing the stock as though those margins were never going to come back to normal. I thought that it would change, because it usually does, and I was right, and we were able to make money on a very conservative stock in an up market. And I think that if you're looking for a good candidate, uh, McCormick's definitely one. And, you know, I like the line of thinking of, you know, looking at these food companies and letting something like this be an opportunity. Definitely look to the Jason's point gross margins as being the place where you see those, you know, increases go through. Can I just say that I guess maybe it was, what, a year and a half ago or something that Joe and I and Andy Lewis Charles went and toured the McCormick right. Spice Factory? And it was an overwhelming experience. Overwhelming from like a, a, a smell standpoint. Yeah, I mean the old factory, yeah. the old factory, uh, the old factory senses got a little workout. In, well, a, we, in a good way, I'm in hoping. a good way. Yeah, we got there and we really went in. Cool. We went in the wrong building at first. Instead of going in like the main kind of corporate building, we went into the spice mill, which smelled like <laughs> I can't begin to describe it. It was like a million Thanksgivings that just exploded all at once. So security is really tight over at McCormick if you guys are just like letting yourselves into the smoke. Well, I mean, we weren't like diving in the garlic powder. I mean, or it's not like there were cops at the door, but you know, I mean, there were places where you could get into trouble, I'm, I'm sure. But I mean, I, did, did you not smell like cinnamon for the next three days? Oh, yeah. 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 
Okay, was... Just to nerd out a little more on the food thing, you might also want to look at some companies that have like knock-on effects. So one might be, so we have a drought that's probably going to drive corn prices higher where it could. Um, corn prices are a primary, corn is basically a primary feedstock for something like chicken that's going to drive chicken prices higher. Unfortunately, people that produce chicken are not going to be able to pass on those price increases right away. So they're probably going to get punched in the in the gut for a while on pricing. It's going to knock earnings down. But historically, that's been a great time to buy chicken producers. So one maybe worth looking at is like Sanderson Farms. All right. Um, keep the emails coming, radio at fool.com. Before we wrap up, um, last Friday, uh, we finished taping the Motley Fool Money radio show. And uh, about 15 minutes after that, uh, one of our colleagues came in the studio. Mac and I were, were just sitting in here. And uh, he's like, hey, I've got some students here. And, uh, can, you know, can I bring them in? And brought in about 25 students from Brandeis University. Uh, I, think, I think they were MBA students, uh, part of an investment club there. Um, just so impressive. First of all, impeccably dressed. Much better dressed than any of us. That's who I was walking through. Yeah, okay. yeah. And just an impressive group of people. Joe, I know that you had a, a panel discussion with them as well. Yeah. And it's just, I, it's just one of those things like the emails we get. I mean, all the emails are great, but it's particularly great to get emails from young people, from people in college, and just the whole notion that you know these folks are out there listening to what we're talking about. But just trying to learn as much as they can, it's just, it just makes you feel good. It was a great way to start the weekend. Did yeah, you, did those you, college investor events are my favorite part of working here, honestly. Did, did they just hammer you with questions? Because I'll, I'll be honest, I said, just hammer Joe. <laughs> just hammer Joe. Yeah, they were like, why don't you do the dishes more often? <laughs> no, no, really, it is great to interact with those people because, you know, I was like a hungry college student who loved investing and loved talking about it. So it's just a lot of fun to talk to people who are excited and passionate about investing and want to learn more. And I mean, we employ a lot of those people, but it's all the more fun when it's people who are just kind of just getting into it. All right. Joe Maker, Jason Moser. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.